gentlemen, welcome wrestling fans worldwide to Knoxville and the Great Smoky Mountains for the Ron Fuller Tennessee Studcast. Six feet nine inches tall, 265 pounds. This historic podcast from one of the most respected and successful wrestlers and promoters will follow the footsteps of one of the largest and oldest wrestling families on the planet. The Tennessee Stud, Ron Fuller. Through 93 years and four generations. The Stud has arrived. Old school or new fan, this unique broadcast will educate and captivate as Ron details decades of professional wrestling's growth with truly unforgettable stories. I want those people out there at home to hear the stud. Sit back and enjoy the ride with the Tennessee stud. The Tennessee stud. You will learn that name. You will remember it. And now, the stud is here. Please welcome the Tennessee stud, Ron Fuller, and your host, Jeff Maldron. Hey, everybody. Welcome in. It's David Summers hosting another studcast with the Tennessee stud, Ron Fuller. And sending our best wishes once again to Jeff Bowden, who we hope is back very soon. You have found the only podcast on the planet which is documenting the real story of professional wrestling. Now, please welcome the originator of the Studcast and the man who changed the podcasting world with the Super Studcast. We'll step back into the ring and back into time with the Tennessee stud. Ron Fuller is here. Hey, Ron, what is up, my man? Oh, man, I'm glad to be here. Uh, Going to take us for another ride today, man. I'm uh, looking forward to it. Lightning's all saddled up, and uh, we're going to do it a little different today. We're going to uh, we're going to change a little bit of what we've been doing and uh, spend a little less time maybe on the TV programs and more times describing the matches. I'm looking forward to getting this one. This one is a little bit different. Uh, we're going to do some things in this one that, May not have ever been done in wrestling before, so I'm uh, very interested in see how the fans enjoy this one. All right, let's get right to it. We've got lightning saddled up and cinched in, and where are we headed to today? Well, like I just said, we're going to pick up the pace a little bit. Uh, we're going to cover two Friday nights instead of one like we have been. We're in the month of May 1976. We're going to cover the first two Friday nights. We're going to cover two Southeastern shows. Of May the 1st and May the 8th. We're going to describe to a very dangerous incident in this program that it involves uh, Homer Odell, who's just absolutely terrified of fans, and toward Tanaka. And we're going into Kentucky again, uh, right around the same time frame and in the same area is where uh, I described one of these riots a couple of programs ago with that tribute to Dick Steinborn. We're going to talk another riot today a little bit, and we're going to talk about how dangerous this one could have been and uh, what we were lucky to get out of there without having uh, something really, really bad happen. Uh, We're going to have a very interesting learning tree question this week. The question is, basically, it's an observation and a question, but uh, the gentleman uh, says that it seems to me the lack of competition because of the territory's boundaries uh, because of defined TV market and non-contracted interchangeable talent, that they might have been the primary contributors for the demise of the territories, from mm. basically the death of the territories. Uh, and uh, when Vince Jr. began to start running cards against promoters back in the day and began to buy their time, 
off the TV shows to promote his own upcoming shows. It seemed like promoters were caught, uh, you know, flat-footed. Pretty good observation because maybe they weren't accustomed to competition. So did the system developed by the NWA and other owners make promoters too complacent until the wolf was at the door? Pretty darn good question, and I'm looking forward to doing that when the end of the program. I start today with a quick look back at the TV show of April 24th, 1976. Now, we're going to be covering TV shows in early May here, but I want to drop back to the TV show of April 24th, uh, It had one particular interview on it. Uh, it was the beginning of one of the most unusual angles that's probably ever been done in wrestling. Uh, Homer made it clear on the show that day he and his men weren't happy because they had not been getting their shots at the Southeastern Heavyweight title nor the Southeastern Tag Championship matches. And they really weren't. They had been kind of put on the back burner. And he was particularly upset about Tanaka because uh, Tanaka had been undefeated for four months since he had gotten there, basically, and he had never gotten a shot at the Southeastern title. Uh, so, you know, he had some beefs there that, that made some sense. But uh, most of his venom while he's doing this interview was focused on the Southeastern champion, Don Carson. So another heel. Uh, that's a little bit different. Most of the time in wrestling, it's always a baby face having a problem with a heel. This, we're going to create a problem with heels against each other. So on the next TV, Saturday, May the 1st, 76, the Superstars in a, another championship tag match had already lost their match to the Southeastern tag champions, Robert Fuller and Jimmy Golden, and they disappeared from Southeastern. They had taken their mask off. They, they, well, they had their mask taken off of them, basically. Uh, it was the first time ever since arriving at Southeastern that the Superstars had not been on television and not been there to back up their protege, Don Carson, who, by the way, was truly their protege. They, mm -hmm. Don Carson and Dick Dunn had been partners for many years all around the country and in Australia, and uh, Leon Baxter also from that same part of the country. So it was a real situation. Those guys were really close friends. So early in that show, after the first match, Carson finished his interview, but before he could leave the set, and the next TV match was supposed to start immediately after he finished his interview. Homer and Tanaka and Austin, they cornered him at the set. And uh, the director I had was really a sharp guy, Bill Kincaid. I've mentioned him many times. He was really sharp. He realized that something unusual was going on here. What the hell are they doing there, basically? So instead of pulling the cameras out and uh, and getting them set up on the on to pick up the match on the on, in the studio. He cued the cameras to stay on the set. And, uh, you know, so Homer got in Carson's face and he backed him across the set. And his two men followed him closely behind because Homer ain't going to back anybody, uh, you know. But he got Carson backing up because he's also got Tanaka and Norvell behind him. So he kind of puts Carson in a bad spot. What's happening is the heels are having a real confrontation on camera. I mean, it's like this is real. I mean, boy, he what, what's he doing here? So uh, Homer was bullying Carson. Uh, I, he asked him right away, he said, uh, you don't have the guts to wrestle Tanaka. You wrestled the Fullers and you wrestled the Wrights and anybody else, but you don't have the guts to wrestle my guy, Tanaka. And Carson, obviously, act like he was surprised as hell and concerned because uh, he was put in a bad position here. And Homer continued with a comment. That, you know, he says, 
you don't have your boys anymore now, do you, Don? You know, so you don't have anybody that can that help you. You're by yourself. And now you're no longer Southeastern's big man because you had those two superstars that were helping you out. So basically, there's something happened here that it's confusing the fans, but it's also giving them a picture into what's going to happen in the next couple of weeks. So it became apparent for the first time that there was real heat between the hills of Southeastern, which is really unusual in most territories. Always kept the baby faces against the heels. They never mixed and matched. And uh, I decided that let's let's just see what happens if we can kind of create something between heels. So Les pushed his way into this situation because he wasn't on the set anytime Carson was there. And he got between the two guys on the set. He backed the, you know, he started to back uh, back them out of the uh, Homer and his boys out of the set area. And then he shouted for the director to throw it to the ring for the second match. So what had happened was just groundbreaking, kind of a groundbreaking happening for any wrestling show in the country. Like I said, it was not done. So there was a first time at Southeastern and maybe anywhere conflict among heels had taken place. It was kind of like a war for power was happening between the heels. Homer wanted his guys to be champions. Carson's guys had been champions for a long time. Carson was the regular Southeastern champion. So what it was, was the beginning of another great angle, And to be quite honest with you. Yeah. So now we get to the card of May the 7th. That's the week after this Saturday, the following Friday night. It's in Chalhoui Park that week. And it's in the amphitheater. We got pretty good weather. The card opens up with a surprise for the fans. As we just talked about, the superstars had lost their Southeastern tag titles to Jimmy and Rob, and then they tried to regain them by putting their mask up against the titles, and they lost that match, which meant that, you know, and that was a shock to the fans. They didn't think there was any way that was going to happen. They just figured, well, they'll get the titles back, and then there'll be some other kind of match. Everybody says, well, they're not going to lose their mask. That's not going to happen. So uh, when that happened, they obviously refused to unmask, and Robert and Jimmy tried to take the mask off of them, couldn't get it done, and Ron Wright came to the ring, and he assisted them in unmasking both those guys. And he obviously had a grudge against them because they had busted his eye on the desk in the studio earlier, quite a bit earlier, and got paid 500 each by Don Carson for doing it. So the first and second matches on this card would have two new mask wrestlers. They're called the Avengers, and they're both in single matches. Mike Stallings, his first match with Avenger number one, and uh, he goes to the ring first. And he's soon followed by both the Avengers for their debut, basically. And the fans, they were surprised, you know, but they weren't fooled by what was pretty obviously the return of the superstars, just with new masks and new outfits and new names. So like, wow, I can't believe that's, that's the same guys, that, but they've got new names and they're wearing new stuff. So as soon as they left the dressing room on that concrete area out there in the amphitheater where the ringside people all sat, it was a raised area above uh, the general mission, which was a huge grandstand there for general mission. And so once they left the dressing room and started out to the ring, fans started to buzz right away. You know, I was like, wait a minute, hey, those guys look familiar. So by the time they were both to the ring and uh, ready for the introduction for one of them's match, the entire crowd could see him, and everybody knew who it was. Avenger number one was introduced, and he was greeted, obviously, by a big round of booze for a first-time deal to arrive there because 
this wasn't a first time deal. Those guys had just lost their mask two weeks earlier, and now they come back and uh, they've got on different masks. So Ron Wright, he's scheduled in the second match to meet the Avenger, but uh, he came down to the ring. He couldn't wait, I guess. And he got the microphone from the announcer, Phil Rainey, and he says, uh, if you two idiots believe you can come back here to Southeastern only two weeks after fans saw your mask removed and think they don't know who the hell you are because you're stupid ones and not the fans out here. I mean, you guys are stupid, you know? So the crowd erupted. They loved it right off the bat. Had matches hadn't even started. Ron Wright's got them rocking and rolling. And then he continued. He pointed up there at Avenger number one who's about to wrestle, and he says, your name is Dick Dunn. Because everybody here knows who the hell you are. And then he pointed to the other one, Avenger 2, and he said, and your name's Leon Baxter, and they know who you are. And then he added to it, he says, everybody here knows how ugly you both are, and why are you wearing masks to cover it? (laughs) They had another big pop. So Dunn and Baxter, they didn't like that too much, and they shot out on the floor after him. Well, he just rolled up into the ring next to Stallings, and they just had to stand out there on the floor, and the crowd just booed them and laughed at them and made fun of them. It was kind of a crazy start to a night, but a really good start to a night because the people have got two masked guys they've never seen. They're already into it because they know what the hell's going on. I thought it was a fantastic opening for a big night for us that night. So a big crowd as well. Ron and Avenger, number two, both of them are going to be in the next match. They both had to leave ringside. And Mike Stollick continued that big winning streak he was on. This kid was really good. He had beaten the great Art Nelson week before, and he put the Avenger number one to sleep and beat him right in the middle with his sleeper hold. So the kid's really, oh, he's really becoming a star. So crowd was ready for the second match. They loved that first match. They loved the fact that he put this. He put one of the superstars and the Avengers or whatever you wanted to call them asleep with his sleeper hole. So the crowd was ready for the second match. And this was Ron Wright against the Avenger. And then there's another great match. Uh, Avenger number one had, had to get involved at the end of it to keep Wright from just beating Avenger number two right in the middle. And then Mike Stallings came back, got in the ring to kind of even out the odds. Referee ended up disqualifying both Wright and Avenger number two. And, uh, the match was good, no contest. Third match was a special challenge between Jimmy Golden and Norville Oster. had something to do with what had happened in a match the week before, in which it was the first time Austin and uh, Tanaka had a shot at the Southeastern Tag Championship. So they're wrestling in a special match. It's only a 20-minute time limit, and it turns out to be a great match because both of those guys were really great workers. And that match ended in a 20-minute drop. So the first main event of the night was next. It was a six-man elimination match in which uh, these elimination matches, the way they went is a loser of the fall had to immediately return to the dressing room. And the match continued until one entire team was all eliminated. So, you know, it could last three rounds. If the heels lost the first three matches, the first three falls, the match would be over. Or it could go six falls or five falls until there's a winner declared. So in this particular case, the contestants were Robert Fuller, Butch Malone, and Jimmy Golden. They were against Tora Tanaka, Homer O'Dell, and Norvell Austin. These matches were really exciting, I always thought, because the odds of winning change dramatically when you lose a partner. You've got three of you against three, and all of a sudden now it's two against three. Sometimes it ends up one against three. In fact, it's going to happen in this one. 
So this elimination match started with Norvell losing in the first fall, and he had to leave the ring. Uh, Butch Malone was next. He left. Jimmy Golden lost. After that, he left. It left Robert in the ring alone with Tanaka and Homer. Now, there's tag match rules, so they're having to tag in and out, but Rob's got nobody to tag, <laughs> so he's, he's really in a bad position here. Tanaka ended up getting disqualified because he got Rob into the corner and he just chopped him up pretty big time and Rob was bleeding pretty badly and uh, he would not stop. He couldn't be backed off by the referee. The referee had him ring the bell. He disqualified Tanaka, which sent Tanaka to the dressing room. It left Rob in there against Homer. And then Tanaka kind of hung around the ring. He argued with the referee long enough to give Robert time to get his breath a little bit. And by the time he got out of the ring and they rang the bell for the last fall between Rob and Homer, only two left, Homer jumped on him right away. And uh, he tried to get four or five pins on Rob. He was pretty damn close, but uh, Rob wasn't going to be beat. He started to come back, and then when he did, the crowd obviously got really behind him. Homer started running, trying his best to escape. This time, he didn't make it to the dressing room like usual. Rob got him and pinned him. So the match was over, but Tanaka came back immediately. Just as soon as Rob got the three count, as soon as his hand was raised, his team was the elimination match winner. Tanaka hit the ring. Tanaka just started on him again like he was when the referee stopped him the first time. Jimmy came back to the ring. Austin came back. Malone came back. It ended up with all six guys in the ring again, and the referee just got thrown over the top rope, and it, it, was, a, it was a hard night for the ref. The match was going to be returned the following Friday as the Texas Death Tornado match with Texas Death Rules, and all six of those guys are going to be in the ring at, together at the same time. Main event was Southeastern Championship match, Brass Nucks Rules between me and Don Carson. I was the current champion at this point. Uh, it was our fourth straight match for the title. I'd won the title in, in the last two times, and he had won one of those three matches previously. Since I was the current chairman and on the TV show prior to this defense, Carson made it very clear. He said, if I beat him this time, I'm not going to give him a return match. We're not going to just keep swapping the belt. He's going to get no more chances. So I taped my fist up before the match because it's a brass knucks match. He didn't need brass knucks because he had this peanut butter glove. <laughs> that was worse than any brass knucks being hit by that glove. So, uh, you know, my, obviously my tape fists were no, <laughs> there were no match for Carson's peanut butter. So we both end up bleeding, but he managed a victory. But he had a little help from his boys, the Avengers. Uh, they had been the big buddies and now they were back. And so they showed up about the time I was going to win. And since it was a no DQ type match, it's a brass knuck match, that prevented him from being disqualified. So they just came in, the three of them stomped me to pieces. And uh, Carson pinned me in the middle, and they left me laying there. Uh, they gave Carson the belt, and he held it over his head, and they all three strutted around the ring. And uh, it was a good night for Carson and his men. Let's talk about the TV the next day, and that's going to be the one that will promote the following Friday night's card. I'm going to be a little more brief in the future about the TV shows than what I have been. I'm not going to go into great detail about all of it. I'm going to try mostly to cover just some of the videos that we're going to be using. And then I'm going to highlight things that are unusual that happen on these TV shows. So this TV had videos from the night before, obviously. We used the videos all the time. The one where Ron Wright came down and confronted the former superstars. 
and uh, gave their names and everything else. We showed that on the program because it was so good. The crowd got into it so good. We wanted to show it. And I was doing more and more video because I found out that there was a lot of things that happened that I didn't expect to happen. And I just wanted to make sure that we had all these things. The video was priceless because you had those massive crowds and you had all that response from the fans. You couldn't get that in the studio. So we brought those big house shows into our studio. And uh, that was a good idea for us. It helped to make our show that much better. And it also helped to build the territory. Uh, Ron Wright, this Ron Wright video of him calling them out and saying, you're really stupid if you think you're fooling anybody here and giving their names. is a perfect example of why we used the video. Six-man elimination, it was also videoed, obviously, because it was really good. Interviews were done. And when we showed the six-man video, Jimmy and Robert and, and uh, Malone did those videos because they were the ones that uh, end up winning the match, and it seemed like the, the appropriate one to watch. And then the interviews were done by Homer and Tanaka and Norvell, the other team later in the program. They both plugged, obviously, the six-man Texas Tornado, Texas Death Rule, all in the ring at the same time match for the following Friday night. There was one change in that match, however. Robert Fuller was removed, and Ron Wright was added in his place. And the reason for that was that in the last segment of the show from the week before, Carson and the Avengers, Carson had said that if I win the title, I'm not going to get Ron Fuller another shot at the title. Well, Rob is in this six-man tag, but uh, I don't get the shot at the title. So it just made sense that Rob would get the shot at the title. So Carson then backed up his claim. Like I said, he said, no, no more Ron Fuller. He's not going to have a chance to win it anymore. And uh, they said, okay, you're going to be defending against Rob. It, uh, it seemed like it made sense. He took Robert on the next Friday night for the championship. But that changed, too. Uh, then the highlight of the day happened immediately after that. Immediately following the interview, before Carson and, and his buddies, the Avengers, could leave the set, Homer and Tanaka and Norvell cut him off again, like they had the week before. But now he had his two buddies there with him. And uh, Les, again, was not on the set because Carson had been at the set, and he didn't do anything with Carson and the superstars. This was the second week in a row this had happened on Southeastern TV. It was a big-time conflict between heels. The studio audience just went crazy because it's something they had never seen before. They wanted to see them go at it. Why not? You know, hey, they didn't like any of them. So, hey, hey, why don't y'all just beat the hell out of each other? So Homer got to screaming at Carson when this was going on, and he accused him right there in public of dodging his, his monster, Tanaka, to, you know, so he could hang on to the Southeastern Championship. He asked Don, he says, why is it that the Fullers get all the shots? Why is it the Wrights get all the shots? So Tanaka stepped forward. He got into Carson's face, you know. Les jumped out there. He was trying to stop it again. But this time, it's more than four guys like it was the last, the week before. Now it's six guys. And uh, he's basically begging them to quit. Now it's right at the end of the show. Time is running out on the show. So the Avengers, they push up beside Carson. Now they're face-to-face with Norvell and Homer. And uh, they're all pushing and shoving each other. And it's becoming a, a dangerous situation in the studio. So... Uh, Les getting mashed, and he just screams to the director. He says, go to black. Wait a minute. You're not going to black. You're not stopping right there, are you? What happens now? 
<laughs> yeah, yeah, that's that's basically uh, what we did. To me, it was a, it's the perfect example of the old saying promoters and bookers used to use is uh, you always leave them wanting more. Yeah. So, you know, the cameras went dark, the credits rolled, same as always. But everyone sitting at home was on the edge of their seat. They're right. wondering just like you, yeah. <laughs> you know, what happened? You know, what the hell happened there? You know, well, we want to see it. They were all going to have to wait until the next Saturday to find out what the heck went on. All right. I don't know how you can follow that, but this is where we had scheduled to hear that story you mentioned in the opening today about Homer Odell and Toro Tanaka. Yeah. Okay, Dave. Uh, here we'll go. We'll jump right into that. This takes place in the same year, basically, as what we're in now, 1976, and this studcast. Uh, it was in a town called Barberville, Kentucky. It's the eastern part of Kentucky. First time that matches had been there. It was in the same time frame as the story I told about Dick Steinborn in that tribute to him, the studcast with the, there, there was a tribute to him. First, I guess I start with this by kind of explaining Tor Tanaka. Uh, you know, everybody pretty much knows if they've ever seen Tanaka, uh, what a mad horse he was and how scary he was. And then you had Homer Odell, who was just as horrified as of the fans as the fans were of Tanaka. He was just scared to death uh, in these buildings up there, especially in that part of Kentucky, because we were having riots just about every time we went up there. So this night, we're in Barberville, Kentucky. Had never been there. We're in a gym that's probably made to hold 2,000 people. It's got 3,000 in it. You can't get to the ring. I mean, the, the aisleways are full. All the seats are taken. People are standing everywhere, wherever they can stand. In those small towns up there, I guess you didn't have a lot of fire marshals running around to see what kind of crowd you've got and to, to cut the ticket sales off. Yep. And our ticket sellers, they just sold until people couldn't get in there anymore. And uh, so what had happened is this building was totally packed. Uh, we were having great matches because we had great crews. And these guys had heat. Uh, all these heels had heat. But when we went up in those areas, we had potential riots on every single match. You know, it didn't. It was like the one I explained a couple of programs ago in which we had three riots in one night. This particular night, we're lucky. We don't get a riot until it's, I'm in the main event against Tanaka. And uh, Homer's out there. Homer is, I mean, he's covered. He's got every type of protection on his body he could possibly have. I'm surprised he didn't have a helmet, a football helmet, and shoulder pads. I mean, he's got a big old black motorcycle jacket on. He's got his general pith helmet on. Uh, he's got a quirk with him, uh, you know, that he could smack somebody with if he really needed to, if they got too close. He's got big boots on. He is dressed for uh, protection. He don't care about anything, but if something happens, I'm not going to get hurt. If they try to stab me, if they try to cut me, they maybe can't get through my jacket. He's really, really taking care of himself. So in this particular match, Tanaka, at one point there, he has me down, and he has a he has me uh, by my traps up there uh, beside your neck, and he's boring in there. He's got that grip anyway. Uh, he's not trying to hurt me, but uh, he hurts me. <laughs> he hurts you when he's not trying to hurt you. And Homer is walking up and down the apron of the ring. He's staying close to the ring. He don't get too close to the crowd. 
because he don't want to have anything happen to him that he's not expecting. So I'm down on my rear end and Tanaka's above me and he's putting that pressure on my trap and the crowd is going crazy for me to be able to get up and do something. And I look over and I see a guy jump from out of the crowd because the crowd is everywhere. There's a massive crowd. He kind of just all of a sudden springs over top of people and he lands on Homer's back like a monkey on Homer's back. And, uh. and <laughs> I go, I, and Homer goes absolutely crazy. He can't get him off. He reaches back and he tries to grab him, but the guy's kind of slid down his back and he's, he's latched onto him. And he can't reach back and grab him where he can kind of uh, beal him over the top of his head and out onto the floor out in front of him where he can do something to him. But he can't get him off of his back. So he starts screaming like a woman. He's going, ah, ah, ah. And Tanaka, <laughs> Tanaka sees it. And I go, oh, no, no, no. Oh, I can see what's coming. So Tanaka just lets me go. And he goes to the apron of the ring. He steps out on the apron. And Homer is straightening up. And then he bends forward, trying to get the guy in the position where he can get him off his back. So he's, he's up one second and then he's down the next second so Tanaka is out there gauging this guy he's gonna just kick his brains out uh, when Tanaka raises up or goes down the next time and I see it coming I'm like oh no 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 this is gonna be horrible and uh Tanaka takes a kick at him and uh Homer bends over real quickly thank goodness Homer bent really fast and Tanaka kicked right behind the guy's head. If he had kicked him, oh, the guy would have, I don't know what would have happened to him. Now, you're, you're in these towns, and you got police, but the police aren't there. I mean, they're there, but they're not there. I mean, they don't know what to expect. It's the first wrestling and big-time wrestling they've ever had in that city, and uh, they don't know that, hey, we're liable to have a problem and you can't go and talk to them and say, hey, look, you know, you got to take care of us. Uh, so there's no help. There's nobody coming to help the situation. Finally, after Tanaka kicks twice and luckily misses this guy, Homer was able to get him. The guy's trying to avoid Tanaka now, and he and Homer reaches up and grabs him, builds him over the top of his head onto the floor in front of him and starts putting the boots to him. And uh, somebody, luckily, I believe it's the referee and one of the baby faces that's sitting back there uh, can see the ring close enough to see what's going on. He came and dragged the guy out uh, before Tanaka got on the floor. Tanaka was about to get out onto the floor. And if that had happened, I don't know what would happen to poor guy. Anyway, we almost had a really, really bad situation. We almost had a fan get hurt very badly. It didn't happen. And we were lucky in a lot of those towns, especially up there in that eastern part of Kentucky, fans were just totally out of control because, like I said, they'd never had big-time wrestling before. Those heels came in those towns. They couldn't park their cars. They had to try to find a ride, park their car downtown someplace a long way away from the building because fans would destroy their automobile. They would uh, burn them. You know, <laughs> wow. they burned Ron Wright's airplane. Wow. <laughs> so, so they would certainly burn cars if they had the opportunity. So it was a very dangerous time and a very dangerous place to work. 
And uh, that time we, we escaped without a huge problem. No lawsuit like in the case of uh, Dale Lewis and Danny Hodge, thank goodness. All right, that's another great one, Ron. Time for the break, so stay tuned. More coming up. Another Studcast is underway, and we're right back after this. Jacques Rougeau is a great example of men who grew up in professional wrestling. Super Studcast number 28 is three-plus hours of the stories and history of one of the most famous wrestling families in Canada. From WWE shoots to the punishment of fellow Canadian Joe LeDuc, this one is special. At TNStud.com or Patreon.com slash Studcast, only $2.99. May 12th, 2020, Ron will release the most requested Super Studcast so far. This one is about one of the best promoters of all time and as mysterious and controversial as anyone who ever participated in the sport. The incomparable Jim Barnett comes back to life through not only the eyes of the Tennessee stud, but six other wrestlers and personalities as well. This one is really true history at TNStud.com or Patreon.com slash studcast. Don't miss either of these two. Back on another Studcast, it's David Summers and Ron Fuller, the Tennessee Stud, never ceases to amaze us. Where are we headed to now, Ron? We're going to start uh, going back uh, to that altercation that we finished right before the break that was going on between the heels, in which we left the program with people going, what the heck is going on? Why did they do that? You know, we went to black. That confrontation is going to lead to something special the next, the following Friday night. So we'll talk about that Friday night card of May 14th, 1976. That's how the show had ended. These guys are all face-to-face. There's about to be a big problem. We go to black, and everybody's like, what's going to happen out of this? So I was not booked in the amphitheater at all on this May 14th card. I had lost my title to Don Carson. He wouldn't defend against me. Everybody had to place on those cards and a reason to be on them, and I wasn't booked on that card that night. And I, I spent some time when I got there that night just walking around that big old amphitheater. I didn't have the opportunity to do that much. A signed autograph for fans, just uh, just making myself uh, available to fans. If they wanted to come for autographs, I was always happy to do that. I even um, went up in the big, huge grandstand. It was a big crowd that night, over 5,000 probably. And I uh, went up into the grandstand some, and. Uh, just enjoy myself, basically a night off. But I always took my wrestling bag with me. Mm-hmm. You never know. Old wrestlers, they never went anywhere without their bag. You didn't go to a show and not take your wrestling bag because you never knew when you were going to need to wrestle. So the opening match on uh, May the 14th is Mike Stallings again in the opening match. This time he's against the other Avenger, not the one that he had put to sleep last week, and on the show before, on the Saturday before, one, the second Avenger got on and said, do you know that that young punk Stallings beat my partner with a sleeper hole? And I've never had anybody put me to sleep. And I challenge that punk to accept a, to a match with me and see if he can put me to sleep. So Stallings came out toward the end of that show in the show and said, hey, I'll take him on. Yeah, but I'll, I believe I can beat him with a sleeper. If I get it on him, I know I can. Mm-hmm. So that was the opening match. And uh, Stallings went right out there and did just exactly that. He put the second Avenger to sleep with his sleeper. So, so then the second match on that card was a we had a ladies midget match, and uh, you know we didn't have those very often. 
and they were great. The fabulous Mula trained a lot of these midgets as well as her girl wrestlers, and she had combinations that she sent around the country, all over the world, and they wrestled each other almost all the time. So we had that night Marie Laveau and Darling Dagmar. Great people, these midget ladies. Uh, I really, really appreciate how hard they worked in the ring. Once they had worked together a whole bunch of times, like she was smart, rather than have them work with different ones, these two would have the same match wherever they went, and they just kept adding spots to that match. So the match just keeps getting better. The longer they're together, the match just keeps improving. So at this point, they'd been together for years. And they go out there, and I mean, they tore the house down. It's hard to imagine, but guys had a hard time following the midgets. You know, it's like, wow, <laughs> these guys, they had a great match. Well, of course they did. And, uh, and that, that was part of the deal with women uh, because of Mula trained all the lady wrestlers, and she trained these lady midgets as well. And Mula was tough on them. Mula was a tremendous trainer. She had a great operation there. She made a lot of money actually doing that and uh, sending ladies around the world and midget ladies around the world. Uh, she really did well. So Dick Steinborn's going to return on this card. He hasn't been there in five weeks. He puts up his Mid-American Championship against Avenger Number 1. And Avenger Number 1 is Dick Dunn. And Dick Dunn could really wrestle. Dang, I'll tell you, and having wrestled him many, many times, I recall one match in Australia and Melbourne in which the temperature outside at 8 o'clock at night was 110. And we worked in a building that had no windows and no air conditioning. Wow. And uh, we went 20 minutes, and it seemed like an hour. But Dick could really wrestle, and, and obviously so could Dick Steinborn. The two, Dick Steinborn and Dick Dunn, are wrestling each other. And uh, they gave the crowd uh, the match that night to really remember. I mean, it was fantastic. I watched it, obviously, because I'm standing around most of the night. So Steinborn got the victory. And oddly enough, he won with a sleeper hold as well. And it was probably 30 minutes. They went probably 30 minutes. We're outside now. It's in May. Uh, it's still pretty comfortable in the mountains in Tennessee. It's still a 30-minute match. is a pretty gong match, especially when you do a lot of wrestling. So both of the Avengers, both Dick Dunn and Tarzan Baxter, had lost that night, and both of them lost with the same hold, sleeper hold. <laughs> Stallings beat Leon with a sleeper, and Steinborn beats Dick Dunn with a sleeper. So it's not a good night for the Avengers. So next up's the six-man Texas Tornado death match with all six guys in the ring at the same time. Like I said, my brother had been in the six-man tag the week before, but he's in the main event this time. This match is with Ron Wright, Jimmy Golden, and Butch Malone against Tanaka, Austin, and Homer. And uh, these Texas Tornado matches, they're, they're always wild. I mean, you know, usually somebody ends up bleeding, maybe two or three. Uh, you got all six guys in the ring. There's a lot of stuff going on. So uh, there's always a lot of pins in these Texas death-type matches. And uh, when a wrestler gets pinned, he has 30 seconds rest period and then he has it to a count of 10 to get to his feet or he is the match is over i mean this is not like the elimination match where one guy gets beat and another has to get beat one person gets beat in this match and it's over so you know it's it's it, it, it was a great one too this this one as i remember it probably had 10 falls in it maybe you know and they just kept going and going 
So toward the end of that match, Butch Malone got hurt. You know, he just kind of fell out onto the floor. He couldn't get back in the ring. And Robert had his tights on, ready to wrestle in the next match. And he sees what's going on. And he went down. And he went down and he helped Malone. He put Malone's arm around his shoulder. And he he started uh, getting Malone out. Malone had some type of legs injury. And uh, when he started to get him back to the dressing room, the match is still going on. Tanaka dropped off the apron, and Rob wasn't looking and charged him from behind and hit him with one of those karate chops in the back of the head. And Rob went down, and Malone fell on top of him. And, you know, Rob didn't move. It was like, gosh, what the heck? So the, then I, now there's a five-man match going on up there. It's just Wright and Jimmy. And you got Homer and his two men still in there. And the match just kept going on. So I went out because Rob didn't get up. And I, I helped Malone back to the dressing room. And then I returned and and Rob was still down. And uh, and he was he was groggy as hell. I think he hit his head. He wasn't expecting it. I think he took his head of a bump on the concrete and hit his head. So a couple of policemen came over and helped me. And we, we got him back to the dressing room. Mm. So Homer and his men, they finally won uh, when they beat Jimmy because he couldn't make the 10 count at the end of the match. So the main event was scheduled to be Robert against Don Carson for the Southeastern Championship for Carson's belt. So obviously, Rob wasn't going to be able to go in the darn ring. And uh, I'd brought my gear. You know, I didn't expect to have to wrestle, but I'm thinking, well, hell, you know, I'm the logical guy. I'm going to put my stuff on, you know. So Robert couldn't make the match, and, uh, you know, it's a no disqualification and no time limit match that night. So after the intermission and the bell was rung for the match, Carson went to the ring, had his belt on. He's ready to defend the title. Nobody came to the ring. <laughs> Everybody just sat in the crowd like, what's going on here? You know, they all saw Rob get hurt, and they saw us help him to the dressing room. So after a long wait, the referee left the ring, and he went to the dressing room and we told him, you know, Hey, Rob, Rob can't work. Go back there and tell Phil Rainey to announce that Rob's not able to wrestle. So Carson demanded, <laughs> he got on the house microphone and uh, he demanded as soon as they came back and Phil Rainey, the announcer made that announcement that Rob Fuller was hurt earlier. And, and uh, he's not going to be able to wrestle Well, Carson just grabbed the microphone from Phil. And he says, uh, you know, raise my hand, Phil Rainey. goes, uh, I'm winning by forfeit. Hot dog, this is great. I love it. What a night, right? <laughs> and the, the crowd just exploded with booze. They're like, hell no. You got to wrestle somebody, right? So then out comes Homer and Tanaka. Now, if you think back about the last show where they're all face-to-face -face and they leave, it goes to black, and Homer's been complaining for two programs now that I don't get a title shot. Now there's the champion, Don Carson, in the ring, and he brings his monster to knock it down. And uh, Homer gets the microphone, grabs it away from the announcer, Rainey, and uh, and he asked Carson, you know, he, he said, do you have the guts to take on my man? Can you beat Tanaka? Well, the crowd kind of liked it, you know. Hell, they'd want to see what was going to happen anyway. And he says, Tanaka just finished the match, and I think he can beat you as tired as he already is. So uh, Carson had Rainey get the microphone away from Homer. He wouldn't go too close to him. He said, go get that microphone. And uh, he brought it back to Don. And Don got the microphone and he screamed, hell no, I won't wrestle tonight. <laughs> you know, so, <laughs> so, uh, you know, then, uh, so then Les Thatcher comes down. 
Now, Thatcher's been in all these problems with Don Carson, and he's had the problems with the superstars. Uh, he's, for two weeks in a row, had to push the heels apart to keep everything from going bad. So uh, Les comes down, he gets in the ring, and he goes to Phil Rainey, and he talks to Phil. There's a little discussion there. So Carson starts screaming at Les about, you got no business, Thatcher, being in here. Get out of here. Putting his hand in the air. Raise my hand. I win by forfeit. I'm going to the dressing room. And he just keeps doing that. So Les finally takes the microphone away from Phil. He gets the people's attention. You know, basically, old ladies and gentlemen, you know, could I have your attention, please? And and uh, he starts uh, telling them about what's going to happen here. He says, uh, you know, basically, because what happened earlier this evening, you all saw it. Robert Fuller got injured, and and obviously, he's not able to wrestle Carson. And he says, I've been in touch with the Southeastern official. And I ask him uh, what should be done in this case. Well, Carson grabs the microphone away from me. He goes, I don't what the hell is supposed to be done. I'm supposed to be the winner. I'd ring the bell and count to 10 and give me my belt and my hand in the air and I'll leave. You know, and the crowd's just like, oh, shut up, Don. Right? It ain't going to happen for you. So uh, Homer and Tanaka, uh, they're still out there on the outside of the ring. And Homer's starts screaming as soon as Les says, you know, the Southeastern official uh, tells me here's how it should be done. So Homer starts screaming, Tanaka, Tanaka, put my boy in there. That's the way it ought to be done. So Les is trying to, this is all pandemonium now. You got a crowd here. You got two heels wanting to get in the ring and wrestle another heel. And uh, so, and Les is trying to get this thing squared away. So he continues on, gets the microphone back and he says, uh, the southeastern official I'd been talking to asked me if there was any wrestler in the amphitheater that had not wrestled that night. And he goes, I told him, yes, there was one here that had not wrestled. So he said, the official asked me who it was. And when I told him, he said, put Ron Fuller in the ring. <laughs> so, so Carson was pacing around the ring like a lion and shaking his head no before he even heard who he was going to have to wrestle. He didn't want to wrestle anybody. And Homer got pissed. Homer jumped on the apron and he started screaming, Tanaka at Les, you know, Tanaka, you know. And, uh, you know, so Les continued. Basically, ladies and gentlemen, tonight, this will be a no disqualification, no time limit, Southeastern Championship match. Don Carson's going to defend against the Tennessee stud, Ron Fuller. Well, the fans are happy to see that, but I'm not sure they didn't want to see Tanaka, too. So, right. So Les left the ring, and, and Carson was trying to fight him. A homer was going crazy, and he was trying to grab the microphone away from Phil Rainey so he could still push for Tanaka. And I came to the ring about that time. And I had to go around the ring to get past Tanaka. He's standing there. He's mad because, hell, man, I want this match, and you got it, you know. The, the whole stadium out there, this whole outside huge amphitheater, it was absolutely electric in there. I mean, everybody was on their feet, and, and nothing was happening yet. And I'm sure that crowd, they were making so much noise because it was an outside arena. I'm sure you could hear them for miles. I don't know how far. Carson and I got in. The bell was rang, and Carson and I started at it. Homer and Tanaka just stayed there at ringside. They didn't leave. Within the first three, four, five seconds of the match, all hell broke loose. Carson had loaded his glove. When I was coming to the ring, I watched him. While all the commotion's going on, he said he knows he's got to wrestle somebody. He went ahead and loaded old peanut butter up. 
he said, I'm going to get this thing over quick, right? And uh, But I watched him. I saw him do it. So I knew what to expect. They rang the bell. He came charging me, took a big swing. I ducked it. I sacked him up nice and tight and beat him with a small package. Three seconds. One, two, three. Bang. They rang the bell. The match was over. But the match wasn't over. Tanaka and Homer and Norvell Austin, all three came in the ring. So I was getting my hand raised about that time. They just kind of brushed me aside, and all three of them went to Don Carson. And I mean, they started on Don, and I mean, within a minute, Don Carson's blonde hair was red. I mean, they they just pulverized him. It was horrible. The crowd was just silent. It was like, what in the hell is going on? You got heels beating hell out of heels. You know, and then when they finished with him, and I was kind of standing there like an idiot, I should have gone to the dressing room. I watched it. And then they turned on me. The three of them came after me. And they did the same thing to me. I mean, they went like crazy on me and uh, busted me open. Then I could whack me with a couple of chops that just split me open. And uh, they just pounded me big time. But it wasn't very long till I looked as bloody as Carson was. And while all this is going on, then Carson gets up and they spent some time beating the hell out of me. They didn't pay any attention to him. They thought he was totally out of the picture. Don got up and he's behind him and he reached up in the air with the old peanut butter and he loaded her up. And that <laughs> stadium stood up like, God, man, Don Carson is going to save Ron Fuller. And that's what happened, man. It was unbelievable. Wow. Uh, there wasn't a person that wasn't on their feet uh you know and if they were they joined that mass of crazed humanity they got on their feet there was an unreal pop when he tore into the three of them and those bodies started flying and a couple of them were bleeding i mean and they all they ran all three of them ran back to the dressing room into the match now i'm standing there i'm bleeding carson's bleeding not because he hit me not because i've touched him because we've had the hell beat out of us by three guys that shouldn't have been in there and uh, we just stood there and looked at each other. And he came over to me and raised my hand. You could have heard that pop in Nashville. I mean, wow. that crowd was like, wow, look at this, Don Carson. It was uh, one of the wildest matches in Southeastern history. And, uh, and it was an angle that uh, really, really uh, just uh, drove them nuts. Man, under the category of leaving them wanting for more. Good job on that. Sorry to take a break right here, but this one's been really, really good. Can't wait to hear what happens next week, but we still have got to get an answer. This week's learning tree question is a real good one. What you got, Ron? All right. We're going to change gears here. Today's learning tree question, it comes from a gentleman named Brian Hamilton, and he began with an observation, and his observation was, it seems to me, the lack of competition, which was caused by it, Territory boundaries, which is true. There was no competition much in, in wrestling back in those days. You had defined TV markets. He's correct about that. And you had non-contracted interchangeable talent. That's what was happening in wrestling back in those days. And uh, he, he his observation was, it seems to me, that was the primary contributors to the death of the territories. When Vince began to run cards in promoters' backyards, this is part of his question and his observation, and buy their television advertising to promote his own shows, promoters seem to be caught flat-footed because they just weren't accustomed to competition. He's right on, you know, and uh, 
And so basically he finishes up, did the system of promotion uh, in the United States and, and in, the, in America and, and other countries everywhere. It did the system of the NWA and, and other promoters just make promoters complacent until the wolf was at the door, basically. He kind of sneaked up on everybody. Wow, I think about this. This guy's really got a handle on things, you know. So, so I want to answer his questions uh, yeah, and, his, and, uh, and his observations, you know. They're very good observations, obviously. And the questions about the demise of the territory and, and, and how it all happened is pretty right on. So I'm going to break it down. I'm going to try to answer this in three parts. Uh, first, I want to talk about the lack of competition within the territory, why it was like that. Second, I want to talk about how Vince Jr. attacked, how he went about destroying the territories. And the last part of it, I want to talk about, uh, did the NWA system make the territories weak? So, Mr. Hamilton, I'm going to start out, uh, I got to admit you, you observed correctly, in my opinion, the the lack of competition did have an effect on the fight to keep the territories alive. Uh, Maybe a good explanation of professional wrestling and how it was promoted from the very beginning would be a great place to start here today. So uh, that's why I think things developed as they did from the early 1900s to the 1980s. And it's the reason why territories were not prepared for competition, is the way things happened and the way professional wrestling evolved from the early 1900s into the 1980s. Uh, wrestling wasn't never, it wasn't an organized sport. It wasn't baseball. It wasn't football. It had, in the early 1900s, just a few recognizable stars, a guy named Frank Gotch and uh, Hackenschmidt, and uh, Stecker, Joe Stecker, uh, you know, just a few names, and matches were rare, and they were usually promoted in the northeastern part of the country, or in Chicago, and the big cities in the Midwest, and they were promoted by different promoters in the early 1900s, and obviously as a sport group, number of promoters grew, and also did the number of wrestlers around the country. Basically, from its humble beginnings, professional wrestling was a it was a very independent type of business. It, that not included uh, just the promoters, but it included the wrestlers as well. Everybody involved in professional wrestling was an independent. Uh, we were an independent contractor if you were a wrestler. You had a very independent frame of mind if you were an owner of a company. Uh, you wanted to do your business in your own way. You wanted to wrestle in your own way. It was a sport based upon not working with other people. This is, I think, going to be part of uh, where, where the demise comes from. This independence that, that I'm speaking about kind of began to proliferate across America as the sport got bigger. You know, the country was huge, and there was no promoter that was big enough or powerful enough to run the entire country. It wouldn't have been possible back in those days for that to happen. So various promoters Back in the 20s, the 30s, and the 40s, they started to tie up small parts of this big country we live in, and they considered those areas to be their own. My granddad is an example. He goes to Tennessee, and he picks up Tennessee and parts of Mississippi and parts of Alabama and into Arkansas, and he figures that this is my area. I own it. I'm an independent guy. I don't need anybody else to tell me how to run my business. And he, you know, he didn't work too well with other people. Neither did other promoters around the country. They wanted to do their own thing. So as they tied up different parts of the country, 
Uh, there were certain wars. They had wars uh, between guys that said, hey, I'm going to try to take Chicago or I want to try to take this city or that city. But there wasn't a whole lot of that going on. There was a, still a big country there. There was always money in the promotion of, of wrestling. But greed didn't take precedent over the respect that other promoters uh, areas had. Promoters respected another guy's territory. And, uh, you know, you weren't greedy enough to say, well, I'm not making enough money. I want to make more money. But that's all going to change, and, we're gonna, and we all know why. So in the 1920s, those areas of the country were run by promoters. They began to call those areas territory. In the late 40s, problems between the territories became more prevalent because the country was almost totally divided by that time. There wasn't any territory you could create your own company at. You know, so the big-time promoters then, those that have been around the longest and the most powerful in their area, they started to combine their powers together to prevent competition because now there was starting to be a little more competition. Big guys got together and they started uh, protecting each other. They started by forming small alliances, like I'm talking about. Barnett had small alliances with Muchnik. And, uh, you know, there were different promoters that started doing things differently in the 40s. All of this little alliances that we're talking about finally led to the big one, the National Wrestling Alliance, which was formed in 1948. Now, not every promoter in America joined the NWA, but most of them did. There were a lot of promoters that weren't a part of the NWA. Vern Gagne, way up there in, uh, in the uh, northern part of the country, and uh, had spread out all the way to the West Coast at one time. Uh, you had Vince McMahon Sr. in the Northeast that was part of the NWA for some period of time and then decided he didn't need it. So not every promoter joined. They protected each other. But uh, they still operated and thought as individuals. And I think that's the key here to what happened. So this independence of thought, instead of true commitment to each other, it's going to lead to the downfall of the NWA and to the death of the territories. So uh, the gentleman said, defined territories. Uh, That's what we had. Uh, They were based upon television stations and how far out those television station signals went. And whose show was where across the country? If you had five television stations and they covered a defined area, that was your territory. So if you had 15 stations, that was your territory. Mm -hmm. Uh, But it was based upon the television stations and how far their signals went out. So a war with two promoters in the same territory, when that happened, uh, there was always an eventual winner but it destroyed business. It was horrible for business because fans got divided. They started figuring out, I, I don't want to go see this group of wrestlers on Friday. I want to wait and see this group on Tuesday. And it, it happened to me in 1979 with my war for Knoxville, uh, a tremendous little territory, best small territory in the history of wrestling probably was ruined because we had competition because had guys that wanted to take over the business. So uh, competition always meant smaller houses. It meant confusion among the fans. They didn't know what was going on. They weren't on the inside. All of a sudden, they've got two companies running. They've got a choice of where to go. And sometimes they got uh, disappointed and upset because and it didn't go anywhere. So ultimately, competition hurt business. 
it killed business. So let's talk about the wrestlers, the, the third part of this equation. These guys that he says were interchangeable and they weren't contracted. Wrestlers were always independent contractors. The way the business started to begin with was based upon wrestlers getting a certain percentage of the gate. And it was a fair system, fair way of doing it, because if you had big houses and you were doing well, the wrestlers are going to make money. And so was the promoter. It was fair for everybody. If the promoters did well, the wrestlers did well. Yeah. Uh, very seldom were wrestlers contracted or put on guarantees. Just wasn't done in the early years. It wasn't done even until probably the 70s that uh, guys started getting put on any type of contracts. It might have happened to a few great wrestlers, uh, the Thezes and the champions, the world champions. They were in a position to get that, but uh, nobody else was. You know, and uh, it did happen when we're going to talk about it in the next Super Studcast with Jim Barnett. We're going to talk about a, one of the most famous promoters of all time and his relationship and partnerships with a guy named Johnny Doyle. These two guys became agents, the first agents in wrestling, and they had about six superstars that worked for them, and they booked them out to different territories all over the country. Besides Barnett running his own territory, he was basically holding five or six tremendous talents that he could use when he wanted to, and when he couldn't use them and didn't want to use them, he would send them to somebody else and get paid a booking fee, and he would get those wrestlers paid. It's an amazing story, the Barnett story. We'll get to that uh, another time. But, uh, you know, it was the way things were done. Almost all wrestlers were custom being paid upon the gate. So for all the reasons I just highlighted, what happened in the 1980s was much easier because of how the business had been traditionally handled. That's the way it had been done forever. So long comes the guy, since basically everyone was paying by percentage, they were operating in defined areas. They were not fighting each other for control of the television station. They were basically getting along. Competition was rare. Uh, undoubtedly, this lack of competition that came about due to the system that, that was prevailed and it had been there for 60 years, uh, this lack of competition is going to uh, contribute to the theft of all of our businesses and to the death of the territories. So let's take a close look at how it happened in the 1980s. One greedy promoter, and I don't have to mention his name. He wasn't a member of the NWA. He got on national TV. He had no respect for others that were in the business that had been running that business long before he was even in diapers. Right. You know, he decided he wanted to become a king of wrestling. So he first stole talent. He went out and found guys that were good, and he put them on guarantees. He couldn't have trained these guys. He didn't have the quality or the ability to train these great wrestlers that he went and stole from other territories. So he just went and bought them, basically. He inherited a lot of money from his dad, and, his, and he decided that uh, I want to be the man. He then placed some of those wrestlers on shows in the territories where they'd been developed. He took them back when he got ready to compete. He took these guys that he had gotten. Let's just take uh, Dallas, Texas as an example. And the ultimate warrior, one of the first guys uh, he took was the ultimate warrior out of Dallas. And when he went to take over Dallas, he took him right back and put him in his main events so that the guys who had developed that talent, then they had to compete against the guy they had developed. 
pretty rotten way of doing it, actually. So he put these key wrestlers in these key cities on top in areas in which they had been developed by somebody else. He not only ran in everyone's area, but then he went and bought time on your television show, uh, you know, and <laughs> the commercial time to advertise his upcoming match. And you couldn't go back and, and compete that way against him because his commercials were on national TV. And those commercials were so expensive, nobody could afford to do that. So you weren't going to be able to compete in that same way. So I'm not blaming him for these tactics. I really believe that they were smart. But my question is, why he needed to expand everywhere when his father's area of the country had the largest population in cities in America? If he had just hired the great talent and ran a good operation, he would have made more money by far than any promoter in the world anyway. Yeah. You know, so even worse to me, what he did to put people out of business is what he's done to the great sport we love today. And we still love it, but he murdered it. He did not take it and make it a better product. He took it and destroyed the product that it was, the great product it was. So the system of the NWA and the other promoters, it did make us complacent. For decades, there had been an unspoken respect between promoters that led to the complacency that destroyed the territories. Before we end up this learning tree today, I'd like to take a look back and, uh, and think about what it could have been to prevent what happened, what could have been done. And this question got me thinking about why didn't we do something different? And, uh, you know, I'd been in sport for almost 20 years in 1988. I'd built three different wrestling companies by then. I had bad knees. I'd been burned out for three years. Uh, probably should have left the sport before I did. And then all of this went down. I was ready to retire. If I hadn't have been ready to retire, I think I could have gone back and maybe talked to the NWA promoters, and I would have been able to rally those guys, maybe, to go after him rather than waiting there for him to go after you and right. everybody still remaining individuals and not combining to compete. We just basically all rolled over and played dead. So they had much better talent among them than Junior ever had. In the 1980s, you take the NWA territory's talent and, and look at what Vince had at his greatest time. There is no comparison. The NWA wrestlers were far superior, much greater talent. So all we would have probably had to do is combine together and put together a 12 or 16-man, 20-man package of stars and do exactly to him what he did to everybody else. Take those shows into his territory. Go fight him on his own front, which never happened for him. He never had to worry about somebody coming after him. You could have gone and take these magnificent cards of stars that people knew all over the world and put them in his territory, and we would have started taking over his towns instead of his taking over ours. I think it would have probably been a way we could have uh, not only survived, but I think in the end, we could have eliminated him instead of him eliminating everybody else. And uh, I wish, you know, but, uh, but something like that, when I think about it, something like this, it, it just makes me wonder what wrestling might have looked like today if we had made that type of decision uh, within the NWA and the promoters in, uh, in America and around the world a uh, long, long time ago. 
if anybody could have organized that, I certainly think it would have been you, the Tennessee stud, Ron Fuller. By the way, please like the Ron Fuller, the Tennessee stud page and automatically become a friend with a legend. Follow the stud on Twitter at Ron Fuller Welch. Join Ron and me for Super Studcast number 28 with the fantastic storyteller Jacques Rougeau. He talks about his British Bulldog shoot in WWE many years ago, beating Hulk Hogan in Montreal, and so much more. Ron, would you also like to give us a little preview of the next Super Studcast? Yeah, yeah, I would, Dave. Uh, You know, uh, the next one... As long as I've been doing Super Studcast, and as many as I've done, the most requested Studcast I have been asked to do is to do something on Jim Barnett. Yeah, Jim Barnett was one of the greatest promoters of all time, one of the most controversial personalities in the history of wrestling, and not just wrestling, and other things too. And uh, you know, I I'm going to dig deep. I'm going to take the deep dive into Jim Barnett. I'm going to take fans to where they never knew that Jim Barnett went. Not only am I going to do it, but I'm going to do it with other wrestlers. I've got six guys that are going to be on this show with me. They're going to tell their Barnett stories, just like I'm going to tell my Barnett stories. And uh, that one is going to be released on Tuesday, May the 12th. And for those people that have been asking me to do one on Jim Barnett, I'm going to make this as special as I can. Uh, We're not going to hear just from me. We're going to hear opinions from six other wrestlers at least. That is awesome. So that's a super stud cast that we have to look forward to, but there's still another stud cast coming up. And what is the destination for that? Well, we're going to talk a little more about all this that happened on this stud cast. What happened here with me and Don Carson standing in the ring and and Don Carson is now a, a babyface? What's going to happen after all that? We're going to go back and piece this show together again and and we're going to progress on into the last two weeks in May of 1976. Uh, we're going to highlight the TV shows kind of like I did today, tell the really important parts of the TV show and what it had to do with the crowds and and the cards the, of the following week. Uh, we're going to talk about May is a monthly rating period. There's four per year. It's a television rating period. And we're going to talk about uh, where our ratings were falling in uh, May of 1976. Uh, we got a great learning tree question again. It's from a lady this time. Very unusual. And it has to do with riots. And, you know, when we talked about one today, you know, and basically she'd like to know, uh, did I want them? Uh, how did wrestlers react to riots and uh, and did business increase after a riot? It was right. a bigger crowd the following week. Great question. So I'm looking forward to that. Before we go, Dave, I just want to thank all the fans worldwide that listen to me every week. And uh, I hope you've enjoyed it. And if you do enjoy it, uh, be sure and tell your friends about us. You know, I'd love to be able to talk wrestling with whoever it may be. Everybody out there, please stay safe. Uh, We know what's going on around the world today, and may God bless us all. Well, there it is, Stud, another one in the books. This is David Summers reminding you that Ron Fuller's Studcast is an Arcadian Vanguard podcasting production. Thanks for joining us today for this historic Studcast. The true story continues next week. So full Nelson, your friends, and point them in our direction. 
for another ride with the Tennessee Stud. This is David Summers saying so long from the Great Smoky Mountains.